leftovers. Or the DMV. Or house cleaning. Or Chumba Casino always brings the fun. Play over a hundred different games online for free from anywhere. You could redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. Live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mobile phone companies say they offer home internet. But if their internet comes from a cell phone network, you should know. It's just phone internet, not home internet. Keep your home up to speed with Cox. Cox Internet is faster and has more reliable download speeds than 5G home internet. Cox is the real home internet you're looking for. Based on Cox analysis of UCLA speed test intelligence data, Q3 2022 and Cox serviceable areas, visit cox.com internet for details. From the era that brought you names like Chamberlain, Russell, and West. The Chamberlain, he's got it! Jerry West made it from the other side of the mid-court strike! To the glory days of Magic and Kareem. Abdul-Jabbar is on the brink of an NBA all-time record. From a time where last-second shots were expected. Here comes Kobe. From way outside. Got it! Oh, man! Gets it to LeBron. For three for the win. Yes! LeBron James! And rings were handed out like him. Here's Jordan. It's Duncan Dynasty with your host, Garrett Bougay, and it starts right now. Welcome to another episode of Duncan Dynasty. I'm your host, Garrett Bougay, and with me this week, I've got a very special guest. He's the original co-host of the show, Anthony Brown. Anthony, how you doing? Doing pretty good, Garrett. How are you? I'm I'm doing well, you know, as as well as to be expected in uh, in this time that we're living in, and uh, the um, the the thing I know that you're pretty excited about uh, being a, a enormous Michael Jordan fan, maybe the biggest Michael Jordan fan that I know, is that uh, we we finally have some sports content in this ten uh, part documentary series called The Last Dance. How are you feeling after uh, the first four episodes? Are you enjoying it? Yeah, it was uh, it was really interesting. It's it's bringing back memories of me watching, um, you know, Michael Jordan um, beyond the the rim or something like that, or above the rim. He had all of these, uh, you know, NBA TV, NBA enter- entertainment videos that I would watch like religiously, and then I would go outside and play basketball for you know hours. So kind of had the urge to go shoot around yesterday. Yeah, I think uh, I think all of us are are feeling that urge, and uh, you know, doing the incredibly cool celebrations that Jordan did throughout his career. He uh, he was a fun player to imitate, of course. Growing up, um, the 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 thing that I am excited about with this whole you know this doc coming out is the fact that you know we're of the age where yeah maybe we didn't get to see Jordan you know, in his prime, because we were both born in the, you know, late 80s, early 90s period, but we are old enough that, uh, you know, we know the legend of Jordan, and a lot of his classic games were, were being played while while we were, you know, developing a passion for the sport, but what I'm, what I'm really excited about is a lot of the younger generation that really didn't get to see him at all and hasn't gone back and and done what uh, the two of us have done and watched some of his old games they're finally getting 
the uh, the MJ experience. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. You know, I I actually started watching him. One of my earliest basketball memories was uh, a little bit of the '96 Finals. Um, my my dad was watching it, and I was a little kid, and I was like, "They're talking about this Michael guy a lot. Who is he?" My dad's like Michael Jordan. I'm like, "Is he is he really good? Is he the best?" My dad's like, "Yeah, actually." And from then on, I was like, "Okay, Michael Jordan." And so I actually got to see a little bit of 97, and I remember watching a lot of the 98 season as, like, my first NBA season that I was actually into as a kid, Um, and mostly the playoffs, really. But um, I would have all of these, and you know that I went back and watched a lot of those games in college. Right. But I would have these conversations, you know, to your point, with um, these newer generation, most of them, like, LeBron fans, Um, And I love LeBron, too, but I would bring up something about Michael Jordan, and they'll say something about, well, he wasn't that strong, or he wasn't that fast or anything, or it's not like he could shoot, and I'm just like, have you ever seen a game of this guy? Like, (laughs) Right. uh, So, yeah, I, I agree. One of the things I was really excited about was the chance for everyone, even like uh, my mom is watching it and really getting a kick out of seeing how good these players were and how good this team was. Absolutely, and uh, speaking to the the MJ LeBron James debate, of course, we did a bunch of episodes on on that discussion that people can can check out. Uh, but uh, you know that, especially on Twitter, is basically the the crux of the entire discussion online. Is just uh, you know people going back and forth that you've got the LeBron stands and you've got the Jordan stands, and and that that is pretty much ninety five percent of what uh, what Twitter especially the the NBA conversation is is about right now. But uh well since we've talked enough about that, let's let's focus more in on the actual documentary and some of the stuff that we found interesting. Obviously the the college stuff with North Carolina, you know, the the shot that he hit in his freshman year to win the national title. Um some of the some of the quotes that I that I found pretty interesting from his uh, North Carolina days, one being James Worthy saying that I was better than him for about two weeks. <laughs> and, uh, and he might be being a little bit humble there because uh, I think he was actually the best player on that team for that season. But um, <laughs> but uh, Roy Williams as well, the assistant coach at the time for, for North Carolina, he had a quote also saying that, Jordan was the only player that could turn it on and off, and he never frickin' turned it off. <laughs> right. Yeah, amazing quotes. It's cool seeing that footage from back then, too. Absolutely, yeah. The um, You got to see a little bit of his, his practice work. They, they have done a, a real neat job of, obviously, a lot of the a lot of the, uh, the footage that, uh, that they shot for the 97-8 season uh, is uh, is is yet to be seen but they've done a decent job of, of building up and showing his whole career leading up to that last dance moment um, but but yeah moving into his NBA career there was uh, the, the thing that really was surprising to me was the whole the background info on his leg slash foot injury uh, that he suffered in his second season and uh, Jerry Reinsdorf the the owner of the Bulls basically talking about that uh, the, the doctors informed Jordan and the team that he had a 10% chance of, of re-injuring it if he returned to the court too soon, and it, it could have been a career-ending injury. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
I, I knew it was bad. Um, I, I don't know if I knew, if I'd heard that 90%, 10% thing before. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a big deal. I, I thought it was really interesting. You get a look at Jordan's mentality and Jordan's worldview there, though, because, you know, and I'm sure you were going to talk about it, but how he sees that situation as more of a glass half, uh, half full than glass half empty compared to everyone else. Right, and and Jerry Reinsdorf had a quote saying, "I don't think you're understanding, you know, that risk reward ratio." And and uh, he said, "You know, if you have a terrible headache, and I gave you a bottle of pills, and nine of the pills would cure you, and one would kill you, would you take the pill?" And Jordan had the most, you know, Jordan response possible. And he's saying, "Depends on how fucking bad the headache is." <laughs> But yeah, it's it just goes to his competitive desire. All he cared about was winning and competing at the highest of levels. And so the idea of sitting out to to avoid a 10% outcome just was, you know, not something that he really considered. And it also kind of shows you why maybe he hasn't been the greatest owner with the Charlotte Hornets and Bobcats because he hasn't been willing to take the philosophy of you know, if we lose more games now, that might help us win a championship in the future. Uh, you know, he just will not accept losing at any cost at any time, regardless of if that means you basically condemn your team to long-term mediocrity. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. I hadn't thought about that in terms of him uh, being an owner, uh, but I think you're completely right. And, um, you know, what another thing I thought was interesting was um, I was aware that in that 1985-86 season, they had limited Jordan's minutes coming back, and um, you know he was doing pretty well. And I was aware that there was a game where everything kind of comes to a head, where they take him out um, at the end of a big game. I didn't realize how close that game was, um, and it was really cool that they were going through that footage and showing how they were about to lose the game. Jordan goes on a run and gets them to the point where they can pull this win out and and potentially meet you know make the playoffs and there's I think there was 30 seconds left and that was when they decided like hey we got to pull you your minutes are up or the coach is going to be fired um, like the absurdity of that situation to be like well you know we restricted your minutes if you go 30 seconds over you're going to get hurt and it's like yeah, what, what were your thoughts on that? Well, yeah, you, you see a lot of coaches at times, you know, when, when Zion Williamson this year was, was put on a, a minute's limit right when he was, was coming back from uh, his, his knee injury that he suffered in preseason, the team was basically playing him four minutes at the start of each and every quarter. And okay. uh, at some point, people were just saying, like, well, if you're going to play him four minutes every quarter anyway, why not play him in the last four minutes, <laughs> you know, instead of the first four minutes? And, uh, yeah, it, 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 it does beg the question why coaches don't recognize, okay, if I have him for 14 minutes, let's make sure that at the very least, you know, it's one thing if the game goes to overtime and you can't play him at overtime. But at the very least, yeah, let's set it up so that that 14 minutes ends once the once the clock hits zero of regulation. Yeah, 100%. It's you, I 100% agree with that. Um, it is interesting when we when we look at that. You know, the 90% chance of of 
being okay, but the 10% risk of injury, I feel like if I was in uh, Reinsdorf's shoes, I would have also been pushing for, like, dude, just sit the, the year out, right? Like, especially in this, this era now where we're, um, you know, watching the minutes uh, that people are playing. What's that phrase called again? Um, the, uh, the load management? Load management, right? Like, um, imagining in this, this isn't a, a knock on Kawhi Leonard at all, but, you know, remembering him with his quad injury, in San Antonio and how long he sat out for that. And even though there were some team doctors who thought he might've been able to play, um, could you see this sort of thing happening in today's NBA? Absolutely I not. I, I don't think he plays. I think there's a hundred percent chance he is, uh, he is sitting out. And again, yeah, not only the risk reward in terms of just the, the odds that he gets hurt, but also, yeah, this is a team that that season they made the playoffs, you know, John Paxson hit that shot after they took him out with 30 seconds left and got him in, but they won 30 games. They were an eighth seed. There's a reason they were playing the 86 Celtics in round one. Uh, so, yeah, they had no chance of winning a title. So it's not just the risk-reward of, oh, there's a 10% chance of him, uh, you know, getting hurt, but even the 90% outcome, if that comes to fruition – you're what are you doing you're yes you you get this great performance and obviously it adds a lot to Jordan's legacy looking back but uh yeah it meant nothing in terms of his uh you know championships his uh you know when when people look back and say oh that 86 Bulls team it it really doesn't make any difference if they miss the playoffs by one game or get swept in round one yeah no you're you're totally right the, uh, the, the the other thing that I thought was interesting, looking at Jordan's stats, you know, the the playing at the end of the year on that 14-minute restriction meant his season totals, he averaged 25.1 minutes per game that season, still still managed to put up 22.7 points per game. <laughs> that's, that's pretty incredible. Uh, on the minutes restriction. Yes. <laughs> But another thing that I thought was was interesting was uh, I had not I, I didn't I don't know if you knew about this but the whole storyline of Michael Jordan playing golf with Danny Ainge in between games one and two of that first round series and apparently Ainge uh, took some money off of Jordan was talking trash which he uh, Ainge even admitted on the dock was probably not the greatest idea uh, but uh, yeah the that that also sparked a lot of debate because there's this there's this theory that players in the 80s and 90s, you know, didn't fraternize, they weren't friendly, that it was more cutthroat back then, but this maybe shows that it's uh, a little more similar to today's players being friendly with each other and and hanging out off the court. Uh, you know, maybe there's a little bit more similarity there than you would think. Yeah, I I, I would agree with that. I um I think that's one of those things that the the older players and the older generation maybe is uh, a bit unfair on the of the newer generation with that criticism. Um, you know, I I've known about Jordan when he would go to New York. You know, uh, he would always have the the Knicks players over. He'd have Charles Oakley. You know, uh, go to dinner with him. And I remember in the '93 Finals, uh, one of the storylines was that Charles Barkley would go to dinner with him and then Jordan would score 40 something on him. Um, and, and there was that Van Gundy game where, uh, you know, Van Gundy even called him a con man because he was, you know, had these friends in the NBA. Um, 
and then got torched by Jordan. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I think they've always had friendships. I think what it is is social media is different now, and we're able to see into their lives even more. Right. Uh, that that they have these friendships, and you know, I don't want to go off topic, but I think mostly what we're seeing is are, are the result of rule changes. Right, you're not allowed to be as physical in today's game as you used to be back then, and I think it maybe gives the perception that people aren't playing as hard or aren't as competitive. Um, when maybe if there was more hand checking rules, you'd see people knocking people down a little bit more. But I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a that's a good point. You know, just speaking to moving ahead a little bit, even like uh, we'll talk a little bit more about this later. But yeah, those bad boy Pistons teams and the the flagrant fouls that they were committing constantly. Yeah, their their players would just be thrown out of the game uh, in in today's league. So yeah, there is that element of how the rules have have sort of changed things, and and the league themselves have admitted that they've instituted a lot of these rules. They they instituted rules in regards to taunting and and eliminating that from the game because they felt like that led a lot of times to these fights that that took place that were prevalent in the in the 70s especially and into the 80s um so yeah there there is a lot of that with the with the rule changes and 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 you're absolutely right the the social media aspect us actually getting a look into their lives you know we might see a, a photo on twitter or instagram of lebron and and Dwayne Wade hanging out now, whereas we just didn't uh, didn't have access to that back in the day. Um, what one of the things about the documentary that uh, that that annoyed me just a little bit in terms of its exclusion was the fact that they they didn't play anything hardly from the 1988 season, and that is the year where uh, you know of course this is the year prior to. Uh, the the shot that he hits against the Cavs to beat them in five. But the year prior in 88, he scores 50 points against Cleveland in game one of their first round series, then backs that up with 55. And the Bulls again beat the Cavs in brutal fashion, three games to two, win it in the decisive game. And, and then also in the second round, then they lost to the 1988 Detroit Pistons, a Pistons team that that nearly won it all. They lost in Game 7 to the Lakers in the finals. But it was an odd exclusion for me for, for a couple of reasons. One, because, you know, the the way Jordan absolutely decimated the, the Cleveland Cavaliers is something that can't be understated. And and also, the what he had to overcome with Detroit, you know, he said himself that uh, they had to lose twice to Detroit before they got over the hump, but in reality, it was three times. It was only just twice in the conference finals. Yeah, uh, that's a really good point. That is a weird exclusion. It, it seemed like they were trying to push the storyline, you know, about the '89 the shot, and I guess it it looks better or sounds better that you know. Uh, Jordan had to break through this Cavs team, and then there was the Pistons, where in reality, you're, you're right, he had to go three times in a row uh, against the against the Pistons, not in the conference finals that first year, but but still, like, you know, these were the teams that he had to break through. <laughs> it's an odd exclusion. I guess maybe they were worried a little bit about just um, generating confusion amongst the audience. You know, having the the same teams playing and the same the same 
players and and having a confusion over okay what year is this that sort of thing but um, I do think especially when you're you're going for a long form documentary that that's that's the perfect place to to really um, you know have those building blocks and show people okay so oh he did that to the Cavs in 88 and then the shot happened uh, the following year, you know, oh, they they lost to Detroit not once, not twice, but three times. And and all of that talk about, you know, when they finally broke through and, and beat the Pistons in 91, and, and Jordan mentioning that the, the Pistons didn't, uh, didn't uh, shake their hands and, and left the court, I think all of that has much more of an, an impact if you, if you uh, show that 88 series as well. Yeah, that's a, that is a good point. I found myself... I think it, me watching it with my parents, I'm adding commentary. Like, I can't help it. And so there's me turning to my mom the whole time, like, well, you know, actually they played in 88, too. They went three years in a row. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, kind of, I couldn't help but put that in there because, like you're saying, that context does make it uh, does make it better. And I'd actually forgotten about the 88 Cavs series, even though I think that was one of our first uh, – conversations as roommates was talking about that series and um i I don't know if you remember that back at ONU (laughs) yeah yeah it um you know my uh my dad was was scarred many times over by Michael Jordan and he was actually uh, you know in the arena for the shot so uh so so Jordan basically uh ruined my dad's uh early uh adulthood (laughs) but uh (laughs) Uh, that and uh, Michael Jordan and John Elway, I guess I should say, the two of them combined ruined my dad's uh, early adulthood. But um, the yeah uh, the the interesting thing though too, you know, hearing some some background information on the shot and that '89 series. One of the things that I found fascinating was Ron Harper mentioning that he went to Lenny Wilkins saying that he wanted to guard Jordan, and Jordan admitted as well that. Ron Harper was the better guy in terms of being able to defend him, and Wilkins opted for Craig Elo uh, instead for whatever reason. And uh, you know, then obviously the the shot happened. And you know, despite it being great defense by Elo, I I, I do have to agree with Harper and Jordan here that Harper was just the better defender, and it it was an odd choice from Wilkins. Yeah, it's um, every time I watched those Cavs series <laughs> going back, they they typically would leave out Ron Harper. Like the, the commentators wouldn't talk about Ron Harper that much. I just knew about him as, you know, that point guard from the, you know, ninety six through ninety eight Bulls teams. And they would talk about his defense, but yeah, they never I don't remember anybody being like, Why isn't he on Michael Jordan? We're looking back, it's the obvious choice because Craig Elo who was a great player, but I think better offensively than defensively, and you're on one of the best offensive players of all time, why wouldn't you put your best def- perimeter defender on him? Yeah, it's, um, and, you know, maybe it doesn't make a difference. Maybe Jordan is great enough that it, it literally didn't matter who was guarding him on that possession. But, uh, yeah, it, it it was interesting, and, you know, I've always held, and Lenny Wilkins is a great coach. I've always held him in, in great esteem, but... Uh, yeah, it is. Uh, it is one of those things where you you think, oh yeah, that that is a little bit of a, a questionable decision, especially when a player is approaching you and saying, "I want this assignment." Um, but 
Yeah, the the other interesting thing, you know, speaking to Jordan, you know, having to get through these teams, of course, it was Milwaukee, a 59-win Bucks team in 85. It was those 86 and 87 Celtics teams. And then, obviously, in 88, 89, and 90, losing to the bad boys. But but that 90s series, of course, this is the first season. Phil Jackson is the coach. They've instituted the triangle. And, you know, guys like Scottie Pippen and Horace Grant have developed to a point where they're pretty good. You know, Jordan's got a, a pretty decent supporting cast. But looking at those numbers of that Game 7 of that 90 Eastern Conference Finals, uh, the do-or-die game, the, they called it the, the Scotty migraine game. Uh, yeah. But looking at the numbers, you know, Jordan went 13 of 27 from the field for 31 points, 9 assists, 8 rebounds. So, you know, he had a pretty darn good game for a Game 7. But just looking at the rest of the supporting cast, Scotty Pippen goes 1 for 10. Oh, wow. Horace Grant, 3 for 17. Craig Hodges, 3 of 13. Bill Cartwright, 3 of 9. And B.J. Armstrong off the bench, 1 for (laughs) 8. Oh, my God. (laughs) Talk about no help. Yeah, they they ended up losing the game 93 to 74. Uh, So the offense was almost exclusively Michael Jordan on that night. So, yeah, it's it's one of those things, too, where we're, again context matters so much in these discussions not only the the level of competition that Jordan was going against prior to his first championship in 91 but also you know not having a good supporting cast in the in the in the mid 80s and then finally when the supporting cast is pretty good you get a performance like that in in really what was a, a championship deciding game because I think whatever team came out of the east that year would probably win it all I, I completely agree. I thought it was, which, yeah, if they would have gone into the 88 season, they would have been able to hone in on that a little bit more. When I was going back and re-watching the Bulls, that was one of the main things that stuck out during that time was that I just assumed Scottie Pippen was always the Scottie Pippen of the 90s that I remember. And when you see the rookie him, when you see him in those first few years, you know, he's definitely an amazing athlete and has a lot of raw skills, but... Um, it, it definitely took some developing there for that supporting cast. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he, um, you know, even though he was a, a top five pick, I think most players, uh, unlike the likes of a, an MJ or a LeBron, most players they they do take a couple of years to develop into the guy that they eventually become. And I think another thing, you know, Jordan has has mentioned multiple times on on the documentary that yeah, you know. Scotty is the reason I won titles. You know, when people think of Michael Jordan, they should also think of Scottie Pippen. And, and of course, I think Pippen helped Jordan, but I think uh, it, it also has to be said that, that Jordan's presence, you know, a, being a couple years older, being in the league for a few years, being that sort of uh, leader and, and mentor for Scotty, Scotty's development in part has to be attributed to Jordan's presence. Yeah, it really does. One of my favorite things about this documentary is getting to... Because Jordan doesn't sit down for interviews like this very often. Um, so to actually have him sit down and talk through, you know, kind of more mentally, uh, psychologically, how he approached trying to make his teammates better. And I think he, he 
goes about that in, in one of these, the, the first two episodes, about that concerted effort to, I looked at Scotty, I knew that he was going to be my number two guy, and so I started, you know, pushing him in certain ways to build up his confidence so that he could be a number two guy. Um, I don't know, it was because I just heard in the past that he just yelled at everybody. Uh, <laughs> and it's, it's Yes, he definitely yells a lot, and it's interesting that they show a lot of that, but he's yelling with a purpose, whereas I think I've seen some other people uh, in the NBA, I think of Kobe, and maybe that's harsh to say that about Kobe, but um, his treatment of Dwight Howard didn't seem to be about building confidence as much as, you know, tearing him down. Um, I think he called him soft. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and Dwight Howard just shuts down, you know what I mean? Maybe I'm getting a little off topic here. But. No, no, it's, it's interesting, because, and I think um, it's, it's important too, you know, factoring in that, that Kobe and, and Michael both had, had Phil Jackson in as the coach, but yeah, they, they've, they've mentioned quite a bit about how Phil Jackson was so good in terms of understanding the, you know, what each guy needed. We'll get to Dennis Rodman here in a little bit. Uh, but, uh, you know, even, and then Steve Kerr also mentioned how, Scotty Pippen's personality blended with Michael really well. So once once Michael had sort of built up Pippen and, and Pippen was confident in his own ability, he kind of became a you know a, a co-leader or you know if, if Jordan was leader 1A, Pippen was 1B and the they combined sort of were able to uh, speak to every type of personality. you know Jordan came down on you hard whereas Pippen you know made sure you were you were all right. Exactly. And then, like you said, uh, Phil Jackson is also there to do, uh, we'll get into that later, but he's absolutely masterful with how he's able to, to work with these guys and these, these egos. Yeah. Um, so, so let's move into the, the championship season starting in, in 91. And the, the first thing to talk about was, is, of course, the, the, fa- the Bulls getting over the hump and, and getting past the Detroit Pistons. They ended up sweeping them in four games to advance to the uh, the NBA Finals. But uh, the big talking point was how the Detroit Pistons walked off. They didn't shake any players' hands, left like while the, the, the clock was still going. And it was an interesting exchange to see uh, Isaiah Thomas's response to that and, and why they did that. And he basically said, well, that was what we learned from the Boston Celtics, when we finally got through Boston, that's what they did to us. What was your What was your thoughts on on all of that? Yeah, you know that's that's something uh, I was aware of that before. I've I've heard uh, Isaiah talk about that, and I've seen that clip. You know, he's not wrong that that's what the the Celtics did in '88 that they walked off the court. Um, you know. I think he's stretching the truth a little bit to say that that's how the torch torch was passed because I'm not aware of any other team doing that but the Celtics and and the Pistons. Um, I think my thoughts are, I I think there's a racial element to the backlash of of the bad boys compared to the Celtics because I really, I don't know about you, but other than Isaiah, I don't think anybody ever brings up the fact that the Celtics did that. and I don't know if anybody really cared. Um, on the other hand, you know, I don't want to brush that aside. I think that's part of the media's response to the Pistons. 
also the Pistons were a very different team where they were going out there and they're beating the crap out of every team they're playing and had that bad boy image and were proud of it. So, you know, while there's definitely a racial element, I also think it's part of an earned element of they were the bad boys of the league. And when you do something like that, it calls more attention to that. Does that make sense? Yeah, um, I think one of the one of the interesting things I actually went back and I didn't watch the entire game, but I I skipped forward to uh, a, a moment in that '88 series where Detroit finally dispatches Boston and and gets over the hump, and the the Celtics do walk off, but the game is in Detroit, and and the crowd is you know on the sidelines ready to really rush the floor and there there is a bit of an element of oh the Celtics are getting out of there just for their own safety whereas in the in the 91 series with the Bulls and Pistons game 4 was in Detroit so there's really there's really no fear the the idea that they needed to get off the floor for for any other reason than than to walk off and and uh, not show the, the the bulls any respect. Right. No, that's a that's a good point, and it's an interesting contrast to see. You know, Jordan um, was always very professional in these interviews, and it you see how important sportsmanship is to him. You know, whether it was with the broken foot and wanting to compete, uh, or shaking people's hands, it, it's it's about respect at the end of the day. Um, and so to him, I feel like that was the ultimate disrespect to not shake hands after the game. It's just something that you, you don't do. Um, and there's rarely in my athletic career have, have I ever been in a situation where I didn't shake anybody's hand at the end of the game. (laughs) Right. Yeah. It's, uh, it's fascinating. And yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I, I tend to side with, with MJ in that. And it's, it's funny. He's, he still seems to be holding a grudge to this day over that. And, and uh, I'm sure we'll in in later episodes of the Last Dance, maybe even this this upcoming week, we'll get the whole dream team sequence and and how you know Michael Jordan and, and others were pretty crucial in keeping Isaiah Thomas off of that team. Uh, and and yeah, I think a lot of that had to do with with that walk off and and uh, the the disrespect that uh, that Thomas showed Jordan and, and his teammates. But yeah, moving on to, to the 91 finals, another, um, you know, to me, a little bit of a, a glaring omission for the documentary. You know, if, if you're going to talk about the 91 finals, they, they showed game one. It was a close game. They even showed the shot that Sam Perkins hit, the three to, to put the Lakers up two in the closing moments. But they, they also didn't show the, the last shot Jordan takes in that game to potentially tie it that rattles out. Exactly. It, that I shouted out to my mom. <laughs> yeah, and it's one of those things where, yeah, the 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 made shots and all of that certainly is a, it's a huge part of, of Jordan's legacy. But even like you know, and and I'll I'll go back to the the '87 NBA Finals, that Game Four when when Magic hits the sky hook uh, to to put the Lakers up, and then the Celtics with three seconds left, they inbounded to Bird. He takes a, a turnaround, fallaway shot in the corner for three to win the game, and it hits just off the back of the rim and misses. Um, some misses are so close and so impressive that it almost adds to the legacy of guys. And, and that was another shot where I'm like, wow, 
that uh, that that was just about as close as it could be to going in without actually uh, without actually falling. Yeah, I, I agree. It's it's an auto mission, you know, because to me, I think it makes the story better because he misses it in in game one, and then in game three, when he does hit that game winner, you know, you see how he had that second chance. Um, yeah, it's 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 a weird omission. Yeah. So um, the. We, that's basically as far as we've gotten in terms of them going from they've gone from his college days up through ninety one through the first four episodes and, and I imagine we'll be getting uh, more into the ninety two ninety three those last couple of title years of that first three Pete here in the next couple of episodes but uh, I figured we would move now and actually start talking about the the season that this show is based on the last dance and that is the nineteen ninety seven ninety eight season. And, uh, you know, going back to Phil Jackson and his, uh, his brilliance as a coach, Steve Kerr mentioned that he, he tried to have a theme for each season. And uh, given that Jerry Krause had already basically said, you know, Phil, this is your last year with the team. And, and Michael Jordan had said that he wasn't going to play for anybody other than Phil Jackson. Uh, he comes up with the, uh, the title of the documentary, The Last Dance, as the... Uh, uh, as the theme for the final season. Yeah, I I actually didn't know that before this, so I that was pretty cool to, you know, <laughs> that he would have that presence of mind to just say it, like, okay, this is the last one, the last dance, and let's accept that and then move forward. Um, yeah, I, I could see a lot of other teams being dragged down by all of this controversy that we see in the documentary. One, well, you know, you, you talk about Phil Jackson being a coach that won three peats on three different occasions, and that is such a difficult thing to do. And I think a big part of the challenge with that is just the motivation of the players. You know, once you get to the mountaintop, once you get to the mountaintop back to back times, there there can be a question of like, okay, what else is there left to prove? And and little things like that of giving your team motivation in that way can be so crucial for a team to, to actually pull it off versus falling short. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so, um, you know, Jerry Krause, obviously the, the architect of the Bulls dynasty and also the, the guy that kind of destroyed it. Uh, the, I think that the show has done such a great job of illustrating all the things that he did really well. For me, I mean, looking at you know drafting Jordan, you draft, you trade and and acquire Scottie Pippen, you draft Horace Grant. He fires he fires Doug Collins after they made the Eastern Conference Finals, thinking, oh, we've got an assistant coach that can be better than Doug. I mean, that is. That is quite the ballsy move and, and eerily reminiscent to what the Warriors did, firing Mark Jackson and, and hiring Steve Kerr to take them to New Heights. That's a really good point. I, I didn't really make that connection. But yeah, that's it's very similar to the Steve Kerr thing and the Phil Jackson thing. Um, and, it, and both definitely paid off. I think Phil Jackson and Steve Kerr, they're the perfect coaches for those teams personality-wise and their approach to, you know, understanding each individual player and working with them as opposed to trying to make them uh, somebody that they're not. I mean, we'll talk about that with Dennis Rodman, but Phil's approach to, you know, 
dealing with a personality like Dennis Rodman or the, the humongous ego of an MJ or Kobe and Shaq, you know, you, you got to understand human behavior for sure. Yeah, and uh, you know, also Kraus brought in Tex Winter, which uh, and and basically had Phil learn from him, and and they became kind of a a, a dynamic duo of sorts in the coaching field. Um, so so Kraus did so many great things, but then you know you look at uh, when when you've got a team that that continues to win, uh, and they've got the best player in the league, they've got the best coach in the league. And you just choose to to break that off, it is uh, it is questionable. And and I loved uh, Jordan's comments. They uh, a reporter asked him after the '97 championship uh, about the future of the team, and and his quote was, you know, we're entitled to defend what we have until we lose it. And you know, if we lose it, you can look at it and say, okay, let's let's change, let's go through a rebuild. But uh, no one's guaranteeing that rebuilding is going to be two, three, four. Or or five years, and then this was this was great. He says the Cubs have been rebuilding for forty two years. <laughs> uh, he's he's always great with those one liners, isn't he? Absolutely, yeah. He's uh, uh, and as you said, it's it's been a uh, it's been a real joy to see him behind the camera and and opening up because he so rarely does that, and I think that's been a part of his sort of mystique that he's developed through the years by just not being available for, for interviews and, and that sort of thing. And that's why these, these moments like his hall of fame speech and, and, uh, the speech he gave at, uh, at, uh, Kobe Bryant and, and, and Gigi Bryant's funeral are, are so powerful and so meaningful to people is because we just never get to see him like that. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, and yeah, getting back to Chris, I don't, I, I don't understand I, I don't understand that decision, right? Um, it, at, at some point, and we'll see probably in episodes five and six, how it becomes so personal, but it, it becomes a personal thing between him and, and Phil Jackson. And, like, yes, you you built this team, right? You helped to build this team. But I think it's underestimating the luck of having a generational talent like Michael Jordan or Scottie Pippen. Uh, or a coach like Phil Jackson, like it's hard to build these teams, and the the Bulls have not been back, you know, to the final sense. I know they were they've been close uh, in the past with uh, Derrick Rose um, back in the day, but you know, I think once you're at the mountaintop, it I I, I don't think it's smart to rebuild unless you are constantly, you know, trying to get over that hump and you can't make it there. You know what I mean? Um, I, I felt similarly about the OKC team with Harden and uh, Westbrook and Durant, where I'm like, y'all are so close, <laughs> right? Like, just just keep it going. In Ibaka, y'all are gonna win it. Yeah, it's uh, it, it is. Uh, I agree with you. It's it's a perplexing decision, and and yeah, the the idea that you know what Jordan said is absolutely right. That you know if you lose it. And you can, you know, if, if they came back in 99 and, and didn't didn't win it, then you can start to see the writing on the wall. You can say, okay, I I get it that these guys are aging, you know, um, this, uh, we, we've, we've already peaked, you know, um, and, and we can, we can now rebuild and, and move from here. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's weird to, 
I guess Kraus, in his mind, was coming to the conclusion that this was the last year we could actually win it because of the age, because of all those factors. So he's prematurely sort of predicting what the 99 season would have been like. But uh, you, you really don't know what could have happened because, we, you know, we, uh, we never got to see it. We never got to see it. And, you know, Jordan gets the MVP that year in, in 98. You know, he's still the league's best player at, uh, at that age uh, and is still scoring about 30 points a game. Obviously, it slowed down from where he was before. And I'm not saying that Krauss was wrong because obviously, you know, there were those issues with Dennis with motivation. Scotty was having health issues and issues with management. Um, but I feel like you can put those personal decisions or situations aside if you're Kraus just to see, like, look, as long as we got MJ and we've got Phil, we've got a really good chance at a championship. I, I just don't understand getting rid of that. But. Right. Um, and, you know, Kraus not only alienating the likes of, of Jordan and Phil, but we saw in the last couple of episodes uh, really alienating Scottie Pippen. Uh, yeah. Scotty straight up apparently was berating him on the team bus to the point where they needed to tell him, you know, <laughs> chill, Scotty. Um <laughs> And, you know, part of that frustration also was a, was a contract that he had signed, a seven-year, I believe, $18 million contract with the Bulls, uh, which, which kept him through this 97-98 season. And part of, of Krause committing to a, to a rebuild was that he wasn't offering Scotty any sort of an extension, which, which irked him. Right. Um, another thing that I learned through this uh, documentary I had no idea that he was that underpaid uh, that that blew my mind right you need um, you need uh, you need a player like that really to, to build a dynasty for the Warriors it was the fact that they were able to sign Steph Curry to a four-year 44 million dollar deal while he was while he was dealing with a bunch of ankle injuries and then he became a two-time MVP yeah you know that's uh, I saw that on uh, Instagram earlier today, and I was like, that's a really good point. Um, yeah, like, it. I wonder if that was the same thing with the, the Celtics or, you know, these Lakers teams uh, in the 80s. Uh, like, who was getting underpaid that allowed them to have all of those players, right? Like, you got a Dr. J, a Moses Malone, and a Charles Barkley all on the same team. How do you have the money to pay for everyone? Yeah. Um, I don't know. So that'll, that'll be an interesting research project for me. But, um, yeah, Scotty, uh, in the mid-90s, becomes, I think, maybe the second best player in the world behind uh, Hakeem Olajuwon. Um, I think he should have won the MVP in 94, I want to say. Um, I forget who wins it ahead of him. Was that Hakeem or was that, that uh, Carl Malone? That was Hakeem, that 93-94 season. Yeah, um, and I remember it was close because uh, Pippen ends up leading the team, I think, in all the major categories. Um, they won 55 games that year as well. Right, without Michael Jordan. Um, and this is this is before they had uh, Dennis Rodman. So you can't say enough about how amazing Scottie Pippen is. I'm really happy, you know, again, thinking about the next generation, um, that people are going to get to see how good he was because I, I hear... 
you know, I, I hear the Skip Bayless is out there being like, Michael Jordan made Scotty good. Scotty wasn't that good. And it's like, are you kidding me? Scotty could, he could defend any position, right? He's blocking shots on centers and everything. He's incredibly strong. Um, and he was a, basically a point guard in a six, seven body. You know what I mean? On the, on the offensive end, on the defensive end, I don't think people remember this, but Michael and Scotty would lead a full court press at times with these Bulls teams. And I don't know about you, but I can't remember any other teams that would just straight out full court press the other team. Um, at that level in the NBA, like you'd think the guards would be able to just dribble right through that. Right, and David Aldridge made the comment that uh, you know in the '91 Finals, Scotty, uh, starting in that game two, picked up Magic Johnson full court, and and he he said, you know, no one did that back then. Uh, so yeah, Scotty was uh, you know a special breed, and 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 you know going back to they they showed a little bit of his his college experience and and why he was maybe at a lower school and wasn't uh, you know a um, highly recruited players because he, he didn't go into that growth spurt until his college years. So he's a 6'1 guard, basically, but that shows you why he's got that great versatility is because he practiced the ball handling, the passing, all of those guard skills, and then all of a sudden was in a, a small forward's body. Yeah, uh, that's another thing I wonder how often that happens with these players. You know, Jordan went through a similar growth spurt between sophomore and junior year and just becomes one of the best players in the country with that growth spurt. Um, makes me a little self-conscious about my six-foot height and how I never kept that growth spurt going. Right, we were both we were both just one growth spurt away from being NBA superstars, Anthony. <laughs> if any listener takes anything away from this, that is, that is the takeaway. That Garrett and I would have been uh, two of the best NBA players of all time had it not been for a growth spurt, or the lack thereof. Um, <laughs> but no, uh, Scotty, you're right, uh, gets that growth spurt, and it was cool seeing some of the highlights from him in college. I'd never seen those before. Um, it's, it's really cool to see that behind-the-scenes stuff. Absolutely. Uh, so, so moving on into the, into the 1997-98 season, uh, the Bulls start 0-4 on the road. They, they struggle out of the gates without Scotty available and uh what another great jordan quote i loved it was before the fifth road game against the clippers that the bulls had started zero and four on the road he says let's go and get our first road win i ain't gonna say this shit again (laughs) (laughs) right exactly Uh, just imagine being on his team um yeah like just demanding like okay we are winning this let's go um yeah. And he put up like four, I think they said he put up something, some point total in the 40s to, to pull that game out in overtime. But, uh, you know, then they then they start getting into the whole Dennis Rodman thing. And and, and Rodman wasn't motivated at the start, but then he kind of kicked it into gear. And, and the Bulls actually uh, get to 24-11 and 11 prior to, to Scotty's return, which, you know, is, is a pretty solid record without your second best player. Yeah, uh... I feel like the documentary kind of just skips over that. They're like they had a really bad start, and from what I remember, it was like, oh, they're eight and seven at this point, and then fast forward, they're twenty four and eleven, <laughs> and it's like, 
What happened during that time? Can we talk about how good they were when they got things rolling? Um, I didn't know that about Dennis Rodman and, and the motivation because watching him play, he's always one of the hardest working players on the court. Um, I, to be honest, I, I knew he partied a lot, but I didn't know that much about his personal life. I didn't realize that he would just show up sometimes and be like, yeah, I don't really care about this basketball thing. And it's like, oh, <laughs> that's, that's new information. I also didn't, I, I'd forgotten that Scotty had sat out during that first part of the season. Um, I, when I watched that season, I was under the impression, when I went back to watch it in college, I was under the impression that uh, he was hurt and so he couldn't play. I didn't realize he was holding out uh, to try and negotiate a better contract. Right, and then even demanded a trade at one point, but the Bulls just, uh, and, and Jerry Krause, probably rightfully, said, uh, you know, we're not going to, <laughs> we're not going to trade you. Uh, and, right. and Pippen eventually eventually came back. But, uh, yeah, the one of the things I got a kick out of watching Scottie Pippen on the bench, and also Michael Jordan at various times were the, were the oversized suits that these guys were wearing in the 90s. Man, were they ugly. They were. I, I forgot how like baggy everything was in the 90s. It, it looks terrible. Uh, you know, and Jordan, who's, you know, was probably at that time more of a fashion icon. Now he tends to wear sweatpants everywhere he goes. But he's wearing these crazy oversized suits and a giant Kangol hat. And I'm just like, who dressed you in the morning? Yeah. Um, it's, it's hilarious. Well, um, the, the speaking to, to Dennis Rodman, you know, again, I think part of the, the team playing better basketball, even without Scotty, was, was him, you know, becoming a little bit more motivated. And I think, yeah, some of that motivation was the, um, was the fact that yeah he could he could be the number two guy and he, you know show people that yeah with with MJ and me we we're still really good, um, but when I did the the recent podcast with Corbin Ford we did the 1995 Western Conference Finals between the the Rockets and Spurs Rodman was a member of that Spurs team and you know despite him playing great throughout big chunks of that series there are moments where. He's just not in the huddles, not listening to the coach. He's taking his shoes off while the games are happening. There are just moments where it just makes you scratch your head and wonder, wow, what what is going on? But it also goes to show you that Phil Jackson, this understanding that, okay, this guy is, is uh, as, as Steve Kerr said, you know, quite strange, quite unique of a personality uh, that, um, you know, when this guy tells me that, you know, he's just not here mentally. I need a break. I need to let loose. Uh, you know, I don't think there are many coaches that uh, that would have said, okay, go ahead. Yeah, um, I, I completely agree. This is, so I don't know if, if people know, I'm, um, I'm getting my master's in social work, right? So I take a lot of classes on psychology and, and human behavior. And honestly, considering reading Phil Jackson's books to get some insight into how he just has this deep understanding of people because you're right. Anybody else would have looked at Dennis and been like, Oh, he's a kid. I need to show him who's boss. Uh, Phil tells a story about his first meeting. I thought it was pretty funny that they asked Phil, how was your first meeting with Dennis? Do you remember it? And he was like, Oh, it was terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That Dennis didn't want to stand up. He didn't want to listen to him. He's like, I don't care if you sign me or not. Um, 
but to take that personality and be like, okay, you know what? You don't want to be here? Take a vacation. And Jordan's over there like, are you crazy? He's never going to come back. Right. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, the... Um... That uh, that story was a lot more, uh, you know. Again, I wasn't really familiar with with that uh, Vegas trip either. Uh, going into this, and and the fact that Dennis Rodman was dating the likes of Madonna and Carmen Electra, um, <laughs> you know, Bill Simmons apparently had. I I didn't get to listen to the episode, but he had a title on one of his episodes suggesting that like, you know, the first question I'm going to ask my guest today is why do people think Dennis Rodman was interesting. And I'm sitting there, you know, thinking to myself, I mean, this guy has a very interesting life. He seems to be a very interesting person. Uh, And, you know, again, considering, you know, how much the the whole drama off the floor has sort of uh, grabbed people's attentions in recent years in the sporting world, I mean, I think Dennis Rodman would have been even more interesting had he been playing today. Yeah, trying to imagine... Dennis Rodman in the age of social media is that is oh my gosh I don't even know I'm at a loss for words thinking about that you know um, I, I think of the likes of like Kanye in terms of uh, you know some of the off the wall tweets and off the wall things that he says um, you know Dennis would have been I, I can't imagine uh, the, the wardrobe that he had some of the things that he said I mean also, like, the way that games reported, like, we would know about this Vegas trip, and there would be people filming every aspect of him in the strip, just taking all those kamikaze shots. Um, like, imagine Draymond Green, you know, in the middle of the season, just going to Vegas for, like, 15 days or, or 10 days or whatever. Yeah, it'd be absolute uh, pandemonium, no doubt. Uh, but... Uh... Yeah, it uh, it's pretty pretty wild, but yeah, just really impressive that uh, you know, and and I think Steve Kerr mentioning that we've got a Michael Jordan, we've got a Scottie Pippen, we've got a strong culture and a strong locker room that we can take the risk on this really talented player, and boy oh boy was Dennis Rodman talented. I mean the the rebounding, the defense, and and one of the things that was fascinating to me is I, I've always noticed that he had this almost preternatural ability to know where the ball was going to bounce off the rim but to see that he actually practiced that you know he would have he would have people just throw up shots and he would he would try to anticipate where the ball would bounce and i think that's something that's lost on pretty much any player that i've ever come across or seen is uh, nobody really practices the art of rebounding yeah it's, it's really interesting. I've never heard of any player watching the rotations of people's shots to try and get a better idea of where the shot's going to go off of the rim. Like, that just doesn't happen, um, which is why he's arguably the best rebounder of all time. Um, it, it's absolutely insane. I think it was David Aldridge in the, the um, documentary who called him the best on-ball defender he'd ever seen. Yes, and and I had to think about that because usually I would put uh, Scotty in that in that spot, but Dennis Rodman at the end of his career is guarding Shaq at times, right? Uh, and earlier in his career, he's guarding Jordan, he's guarding uh, Larry Bird, and I can't think of another player who's able to 
actually hold their own against a Shaq. I mean, as much as you can against a Shaq, let's be real. Um, and, a, and a Jordan. It's, it's incredible. Yeah, you know, again, going back to that 95 series that I watched recently, you know, he was at times guarding Clyde Drexler, and I thought for, you know, in terms of the Spurs personnel, they had guys like Sean Elliott and, and Vinny Del Negro, but Rodman looked to be the, the, the most equipped to, to slow down Drexler. So, yeah, he is very much kind of, uh, um, you, you brought up Draymond Green earlier, but the, uh, the 90s version of Draymond Green, and if he played today, yeah, he would absolutely be, a small ball center that could that could switch one through five. Yeah, and and Jordan talks about him as you know, and I think he's right. He says he's one of the smartest players that he's ever played with. Um, I've I've seen videos uh, on YouTube uh, talking about the '96 series where uh, somebody puts up a pretty compelling argument that Dennis Rodman could have been the Finals MVP for that series. Now, let's be real. Jordan played amazing during that series even though he's slowed down by Peyton Jordan probably wins but they win it uh a lot of that those wins should be uh you know given to Dennis Rodman with his impact on the game even though he's not scoring he's able to take over games sometimes just with his defense and rebounding and some of the crazy antics that he has up there um you know just being a pest Absolutely, yeah. George Carl, the the coach of the Sonics team at that time, basically, yeah, did say that he gave credit to Rodman and said that he really was the the MVP. You know, I think still giving full credit to Jordan and realizing, you know, Jordan's gonna he's gonna score points, but what really ended up uh, being a, the the Sonics' downfall was those those offensive rebounds that, that Rodman kept collecting that are just so so demoralizing, but. Uh, Looking forward, I'm sure we'll, uh, hopefully we can get together again and, and, and maybe discuss the, the last six episodes after they have aired, uh, but uh, looking forward to the next couple of episodes, one of the things that, that I'm, I'm hoping for and, and am anticipating is the, the introduction of, of Tony Kukoc. Of course, he was a, a crucial member of especially that those later Bulls teams that, that won that second three-peat. And the show has done such a good job of introducing the different players on that Bulls team, the different characters, and, and bringing them in when it, when it lines up with Jordan's own career story. Of course, you know, the, the first episode was all about Michael. The second was Scotty once they've drafted him and, and Jordan started to mentor him. And then the third episode was Rodman when, when Jordan and the Bulls were going up against the Bad Boy Pistons. So I imagine it's going to be they're going to start to bring in Kukoc uh, around the time of uh, the the '92 Olympics and the Dream Team. I I agree. Uh, was that a thirty for thirty on the Dream Team where they end up talking about that that matchup with uh, Croatia's team? Yeah, and and you know I think at this time you you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong on this, but uh, Jerry Krause had drafted Kukoc, but he hadn't joined the Bulls. At the, right. at the stage of those Olympics. So Jordan and Pippen had basically made it their mission to because they weren't that uh, big of a fan of Kraus. They uh, made it their mission to to make Kukoc look silly in, in that tournament. Right. It's, it'll be fun to watch uh, in this, uh, how they portray it in the documentary. But, um, yeah, Jerry Kraus is an interesting guy, definitely made to, to be the villain in a lot of these... Um, these episodes and i'm interested to see if they can show 
more of that other side of him because he was a really good GM for all of, you know, the, the inability to get along with the rest of the team. And maybe some of that's earned, some of that's not earned, but he did have an integral role in putting one of the best dynasties or really two of the best dynasties together with those two three-peats. Absolutely. Uh, another thing I'm uh, looking forward to, but I realize I'm probably going to shed some tears, is uh, Kobe Bryant showing up at some point, of course, once they get to the 1997-98 the All-Star game. That was a, a fun little battle between Kobe and MJ, and of course they may even show the, uh, the, the couple of matchups between the, the Bulls and Lakers in that 98 season. You're right. I didn't even think about that. Uh, but that is, that's when Kobe comes into the that story there. Um, man, sorry, I was kind of taken aback a little bit thinking about Kobe again, uh, and that you know that tragedy that that him and uh, Gianna went through. But yeah, it's it's incredible how just telling the story about this team and focusing on Jordan and some of these other players, we're able to talk about so many other storylines, right? Um, it's I find it fascinating, right? I mean, you know, you know that. Like, yeah, um, it's it's really cool stuff, and I'm interested to see where it goes from here. Yeah, I think it was brilliant to to make this uh, sort of a, a long form thing, and I think that was one of the benefits. Um, there was discussion about how this uh, uh, the last dance even came to fruition was because um, you know the the creators, the filmmakers basically made an agreement with MJ in that season that, okay, uh, if you allow us to film it, we will only release the, the, the content if you give the go-ahead, if you give the green light. And it wasn't until 2016 that uh, MJ finally did, and that also coincided with LeBron uh, winning his, uh, his third title with the Cavaliers. But, but what happened over the course of that time between 98 and 2016 is we started to get these long-form documentaries. You had your Making, Making a Murderer on Netflix. You know, you had, you had some of these. You had the OJ Made in America. So we got to see that, oh, yeah, people are interested in these 10-hour versions of these stories. Uh, so in a way, the, the delay of this documentary has allowed for this long-form f- format, which... Uh, you know, I think is to its benefit. Yeah, it's it's weird to say, but 22 years later is the perfect time for this to come out, um, especially with most of us being home and not having much else to, you know, to do, uh, to not be able to go outside because of the coronavirus. But um, yeah, it's uh, it, you can't tell this story in one uh, in one or two hours. You know, I Jordan's last. Uh, um, NBA Entertainment, I forget what it was called. I think it was Air Jordan to the Max. Um, it was put out on an IMAX screen uh, back in the early 2000s or 1999. Yeah. They go over a lot of this season, but they miss so many of these storylines. And you don't get to see nearly as much of Jordan just in the locker room and, and talking to people and just joking around. Um you, you get to see this very curated, like you said, a very professional, you know, what he wants you to see of him, not the laid back and sometimes, you know, uh, ruthless teammate that he was. Right, yeah, and um, it's it's going to be funny seeing 
one of the one of the concerns he had as this documentary was about to air was he was concerned people were going to think he was an asshole and we've already seen a little bit of that he called his whole team his rookie year basically or he he basically agreed to them being called the the cocaine traveling circus <laughs> uh and then uh, also uh, he uh, he called Scott Burrell, a teammate on that 97-98 uh, team, an alcoholic, and he said it to his to Scott's parents. Uh, so uh, it'll be uh, it'll be fascinating to see, and I think I can speak for both of us that uh, uh, we are going to be on the edge of our seats for the last uh, six episodes in the last three weeks of this doc. But Anthony, this was uh, this was a lot of fun chatting about this. Thanks so much for for coming on and, and taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun, and um, yeah, um, it's always it's always great to come back and be a part of this uh, podcast. We did so many of these back in the day, and it's really cool to see how much it's grown since then, and, and how well you've been doing with it. So, congrats on that. Thanks so much for listening to Duncan Dynasty. Uh, if you'd like to support the show, you can uh, you can subscribe to the program on iTunes. If you can leave a, uh, a rating and review, that would be greatly appreciated as well. Uh, the show is also now on Spotify. Uh, if you can uh, give the show a follow, again, a rating on there, uh, that uh, that really helps a lot. If uh, if you've got any uh, questions or comments or uh, or ideas for uh, for future episodes, uh, you can contact me. Uh, on Twitter, at Garrett Bouguet, and also uh, my email is g-bouguet at onu.edu. So uh, feel free to, uh, to uh, give me any of your uh, ideas. I, I love to hear from, uh, from the people listening to the program. And uh, enjoy the next week of the NBA calendar, and uh, have a great rest of your day. Leftovers. Or... The DMV. Number 97. Or. House cleaning. Or. Chumba Casino always brings the fun. Play over a hundred different games online for free from anywhere. You could redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. Live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mobile phone companies say they offer home internet. But if their internet comes from a cell phone network, you should know. It's just phone internet, not home internet. Keep your home up to speed with Cox. Cox Internet is faster and has more reliable download speeds than 5G home internet. Cox is the real home internet you're looking for. Based on Cox analysis of UCLA speed test intelligence data, Q3 2022 and Cox serviceable areas, visit cox.com internet for details.